Chapter 7 of the Andes and the Amazon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Andes and the Amazon by James Orton. Chapter 7 Geological History of South America. Rise of the Andes. Creation of the Amazon. Characteristic features of the continent. Andean chain. The Equatorial Volcanoes Three cycles ago, an island rose from the sea, where now expands the vast continent of South America. It was the culminating point of the highlands of Guiana. For ages, this granite peak was the solo representative of dry land in our hemisphere south of the Canada Hills. In process of time, a clusters of islands rose above the thermal waters. They were the small beginnings of the future mountains of Brazil, holding in their laps the diamonds which now sparkle in the crown of Don Pedro II. Long protracted eons elapsed without adding a page to the geology of South America. The creator seems to have been busy elsewhere, decorating the north with the gorgeous flora of the carnivorous period, till, in the language of Hugh Miller, to distant planets our earth must have shone with a green and delicate ray, he rubbed the picture out, and ushered in the hideous reptilian age, when monstrous sirens, footed, paddled, and winged, were the lords of this lower world. All the great mountain chains were at this time slumbering beneath the ocean. The city of New York was sure of its site, but huge Donatheria wallowed in the mire where now stand the palaces of Paris, London, and Vienna. At length the morning breaks upon the last day of creation, and the fiat goes forth that the proud waves of the Pacific, which have so long washed the tablelands of Guiana and Brazil, shall be stayed. Far away towards the setting sun the white surf beats in long lines of foam against a low-winding archipelago, the western outline of the coming continent. Fierce is the fight for mastery between sea and land, between the denuding power of the waves and the volcanic forces underneath. But slowly, very slowly, yet surely, rises the long chain of islands by a double process. The submarine crust of the earth is cooling, and the rocks are folded up as it dribbles, while the molten material within pressed out through the crevasses, overflows and helps to build up the sea-defiant wall. A man's life would be too short to count even the centuries consumed in this operation. The coast of Peru has risen eighty feet since it felt the tread of Pizarro. Supposing the Andes to have risen at this rate uniformly and without interruption, seventy thousand years must have elapsed before they reached their present altitude. But when we consider that, in fact, it was an intermittent movement, alternate upheaval and subsidence, we must add an unknown number of millennia. Three times the Andes sank hundreds of feet beneath the ocean level, and again were slowly brought up to their present height. The suns of uncounted ages have risen and set upon these sculptured forms, though geologically recent, casting the same line of shadows century after century. A long succession of brute races roamed over the mountains and plains of South America, and died out ages ere man was created. In those pre-adamant times, long before the Incas ruled, the mastodon and the megatherium, the horse and the tapir, dwelt in the high valley of the Quito. Yet all these passed away before the arrival of the aborigines. The wild horses now feeding upon the pampas of Buenos Aires were imported from Europe 333 years ago. And now the Andes stand complete in their present gigantic proportions, one of the grandest and most symmetrical mountain chains in the world. Starting from the land of fire, it stretches northward and mounts upward until it enters the Isthmus of Panama, where it bows gracefully to either ocean, but soon resumes, under another name, its former majesty, and loses its magnificence only where the trappers chase the fur-bearing animals over the Arctic plains. 
Nowhere else does nature present such a continuous and lofty chain of mountains, unbroken for eight thousand miles, save where it is rent asunder by the Magellanic Straits, and proudly tossing up a thousand pinnacles into the region of eternal snow. Nowhere in the old world do we see a single well-defined mountain chain, only a broad belt of mountainous country traversing in the heart of the continent. The moment the Andes arose, the great continental valley of the Amazon was sketched out and molded in its lap. The tidal waves of the Atlantic were dashing against the Cordilleras, and our legion of rivulets were busily plowing up the sides into deep ravines. The sediment produced by this incessant wear and tear was carried eastward, and spread out, stratum by stratum, till the shallow sea between the Andes and the islands of Guiana and Brazil was filled up with sand and clay. Huge glaciers, thinks Agassi, afterwards descending, moved over the inclined plain, and ground the loose rock to powder. Eddies and currents, throwing up sandbanks as they do now, gradually defined the limits of the tributary streams, and directed them into one main trunk, which worked for itself a wide, deep bed, capable of containing its accumulated flood. Then and thus was created the Amazon. In South America, nature has framed her works on a gigantic scale. Where else combined do we see such a series of towering mountains, such a volume of river water, and such wide-spreading plains? We have no proper conception of Andean grandeur till we learn that the top of the tallest mountain in North America is nearly a mile beneath the untrodden dome of Chimborazo, nor any just view of the vast dimensions of the Amazonian valley till we find that all the United States could be packed in it without touching its boundaries, nor any adequate idea of the Amazon itself till we ascertain that it drains a million square miles more than the Mississippi. South America is a triangular continent, with its axis, the Andes, not central as in Europe, but lying on its extreme western edge, and in harmony with the well-known law that the highest mountains and the grandest volcanoes face the broadest ocean. The highlands of Brazil and Guiana have neither volcanic nor snow-clad peaks. Like all the dry land which first appeared, these primitive mountains on the Atlantic border trend east and west. The result of this position is a triple river system, the Orinoco, Amazon, and La Plata, draining three immense plains, the Ilios of Venezuela, the Silvas of Brazil, and the pampas of the Argentine Republic. The continuity and extent of these vast depressions are more remarkable even than the height and length of the mountain chains. Such are the characteristic features of South America. They are not repeated in any other continent. Not one feature could be changed without destroying these peculiarities of soil and climate which so remarkably distinguish South America. Its position on the equator places it in the path of the Bavary trade winds, which continually sweep over it westward till they strike the Andes, which, like a great condenser, roll a thousand streams eastward again to feed the mighty Amazon. So effectual is that barrier, not a drop of moisture passes it, and the trade wind is not felt again on the Pacific till you are 150 miles from the coast. Were the Andes on the Atlantic side, South America would be turned into a vast Sahara. As it is, the interest which attaches to the continent, save a few relics of the Incas, is exclusively that of pure nature. Nowhere does nature affect us more deeply with the feeling of her grandeur, Nowhere does she exhibit wilder freaks or more startling contrasts. Nowhere do we find such a theater for the free development of vegetable and animal life. The long and lofty chain of the Andes is certainly one of the grandest results of the placations and uplifts of the Earth's crust. While the waves of the Pacific, from Panama to Patagonia, submissively kiss the feet of the Andes, and the showers that swell the Amazon fall within sight of the mariner on that peaceful ocean, the Rocky Mountains are situated 500 miles from the sea, the space west of the Andes does not contain 20,000 square leagues, while the country east of it equals 424,600. 
While the compact Andes have an average width of only 60 miles, the straggling mountain system beyond the Mississippi has a breadth of the Empire State, but the mean elevation of the latter would scarcely reach the bottom of the Quito Valley. The mountains of Asia may surpass the Cordilleras in height, but situated beyond the tropics and destitute of volcanoes, they do not present that inexhaustible variety of phenomena which characterize the latter. The outbursts of porphyry and trichatic domes, so characteristic of the high crests of the Cordilleras, impart a physiognomy quite distinct from that presented by the mountains of Europe. The Andes offer, in the least space, the greatest possible variety of impressions. There is, near Huanca, Peru, a coal bed lifted up to the enormous height of 14,700 feet, and on the side of Chimborazo there is a salt spring 13,000 feet above the sea. Marine shells have not been found in Europe above the summit of the Pyrenees, or 11,700 feet, but the Andes can show some 1,000 feet higher. A strange sight, to see shells once crawling on the bottom of the ocean now resting at an elevation twice the height of Mount Washington. Beneath the southern cross, out of a sea perpetually swept by fearful gales, rise the rocky hills of Terra del Fuego. It is the starting point of that granite chain which winds around the earth in a majestic curve, first northwesterly to the Arctic Sea, thence to the Aleutian and Japanese Isles to Asia, crossing the old world southwesterly from China to South Africa. Skirting the bleak shores of Patagonia in a single narrow sierra, the Andes enter Chile, rising higher and higher till they culminate in the gigantic perfect peak of Aconcagua. At the boundary line of Bolivia, the chain, which has so far followed a precise meridional direction, turns to the northwest, and at the same time separates into two cordilleras, enclosing the great tableland of Desaguadero. This wonderful valley, the Tibet of the New World, has four times the area of New York State, and five times the elevation of the Catskill Mountain House. At one end of the valley, perched above the clouds, is Silvery Potosi, the highest city in the world. At the other stands the once golden capital of Cuzco. Between them is Lake Titicaca, probably an ancient crater, within which is an island celebrated as the cradle of the strange empire of Peru, which, though crushed by Pizarro in its budding civilization, ranks as the most extraordinary and extensive empire in the annals of American history. The Cordillera, of which Sahama, Sorata, and Limani are the pinnacles, so completely enclosed this high valley that not a drop of water can escape except by evaporation. At the silver mines of Pasco, the Andes throw off a third Cordillera, and with this triple arrangement and a lower altitude, enter the Republic of Ecuador. There they resume the double line and surpass their former magnificence. Twenty volcanoes, presided over by the princely Chimborazo and Cotopaxi, rise out of a sublime congregation of mountains surrounding the famous valley of Quito. In New Granada there is a final and unique display of Andean grandeur. The Cordilleras combine just above the equator into one dizzy ridge, and then spread out like a fan, or rather like the graceful branches of a palm. One Sierra bends to the east, holding in its lap the city of Bogota, and, rolling off a thousand streams to swell the Orinoco, terminates in the beautiful mountains of Caracas. The central range culminates in the volcano Tolima, but is soon lost in the Caribbean Sea. The western chain turns to the left, humbling itself as it threads the narrow isthmus and expands into the level tableland of Mexico. You may cross Mexico from ocean to ocean in a carriage, but no wheeled vehicle ever crossed South America. We will now speak more particularly of the Andes of the equator. The mountain chain is built up of granite, nessoid, and schistoid rocks, often in vertical position, and capped with trachyte and porphyry. Large masses of solid rock are rarely seen. Everything is cracked, calcinated, or titterated. While in Bolivia, the eastern Cordilleras shows a succession of sharp, ragged peaks, 
in contrast with the conical summits of cordilleras of the coast. There is no such distinction in the Andes of the equator. The eastern cordilleras has a greater mean height, and it displays more volcanic activity. Twenty volcanic mountains surround the valley, of which twelve are in the oriental chain. Three of the twenty are now active, Cotopaxi, Sangaye, and Pinchincha, and five others are known to have erupted since the conquest, Chiles, Mbabura, Guamani, Tangorogora, and Quibrotoa. The truncated cone of Cotopaxi, the jagged alpine crest of Altair, and the dome of Chimborazo are the representative forms of the volcanic summits. The extinct volcanoes usually have double domes or peaks, while the active peaks are slender cones. Antasana and Cayambi are fashioned after Chimborazo, though the latter is tabletop rather than convex. Caraguarazo, Quirotoa, Iliniza, Sincolagua, Ruminagui, and Corazon resemble Altair. Tunguragua, Sangia, Longanati, Cotacachi, Chiles, and Nimbabura imitate Cotopaxi. Pinchincha, Aracazzo, and Guamani are irregular. The Equatorian volcanoes have rarely ejected liquid lava, but chiefly water, mud, ashes, and fragments of trachyte and porphyry. Cotopaxi alone produces pure foam-like pumice and glossy translucent obsidian. The pocacity of quartz and the absence of basalt are remarkable. Some of the peripheroids are conglomerate, but the majority are true porphyries, having a homogeneous base. Dr. T. Sperry Hunt calls them porphyritic trachyrites. They have a black, really reddish, vitreous or impalable base, approaching obsidian, with a specific gravity of 2.59 in pure specimens, and holding crystals or crystalline grains of glossy feldspar, and sometimes of proxene and hematite. They differ from the old-world porphyrites in containing no quartz, and seldom mica. Dorbigny considers the porphyrites of the Andes to have been ejected at the close of the Cretaceous period, and formed the first relief of the Cordilleras. The prevalence of the trachyte shows that the products have cooled under feeble pressure. From the deluges of water lately thrown out have resulted deep furrows in the sides, and from the prevalence of the east wind, which is always met by the traveler on the crest of either Cordillera, there is a greater accumulation of ashes and less snow on the west slope. Cotopaxi is a fine example of this. In Pinchincha, Altair, and Ruminagua, however, the western wall is lowest, apparently broken down. There is no synchronism in the eruptions of Cotopaxi and Pichincha. These volcanoes must have independent reservoirs, for the former is 3,000 feet higher than the latter, and only 30 miles distance. The reputed eruptions of Pichincha are dated 1534, 1539, 1566, 1575, 1588, and 1660. That of 1534 resting on the assertions of Cheka, Carcelazo, and Herrera, endorsed by Humboldt. Accepting the traditional eruption in 1534, which probably is confounded with that of Pichicha, Cotopaxi did not open till 1742. Then followed the eruptions of 1743, 1744, 1746, 1766, 1768, 1803, 1851, and 1855. We must mention, however, that since the recent awakening of Pichincha, Cotopaxi has been unusually silent. There is also a remarkable coincidence, which may not be wholly accidental, in the renewed activity of Pichincha and the great eruption of Huanaloa, both occurring in March 1868. It is generally believed by the natives that Cotopaxi and Dungaragua are sympathetic. 
There are 51 volcanoes in the Andean chain. Of these, 20 girdle the valley of Quito, 3 active, 5 dormant, and 12 extinct. Besides these are numerous mountain peaks not properly volcanic. Nowhere on the face of the earth is there such a grand assemblage of mountains. Twenty-two summits are covered with perpetual snow, and fifty are over ten thousand feet high. All of these would be visible from a single standpoint, the summit of Cotopaxi. The lofty peaks shoot up with so much method as almost to provoke the theory that the Incas, in the zenith of their power, planted them as signal monuments along the royal road to Cusco. The eastern series is called the Cordillera Real, because along its flank are the remnants of the splendid highway which once connected Quito and the Peruvian capital. It can also boast of such tremendous volcanoes as Cotopaxi and Sangaya. The western Cordilleras contain but one active volcano, but then it can point to peerless Chimborazo and the deep crater of Pinchincha. These twenty volcanic mountains rise within a space of only two hundred miles long and thirty miles wide. It makes one tremble to think of the awful crevasse over which they are placed. End of chapter 7 Recording by Todd